if you look at the top five Airbnb listings in towns in Vermont, four of them are ski towns. Wow. The only other town is Burlington. Not going to be all snow. A wintry mix is forecast for the listening area. Do you remember episode 60 about Mad River Valley real estate trends? Well, this is the flip side. Alex Kaufman, Wintry Mix, episode 64. Christine Keeney gets after it. You may know her from her Instagram handle at knee dipping ginger where she shows us all how to get maximum telepow. But in episode 64, she's going to share some of her well-earned insights into the far-reaching challenges around ski-town affordable housing. Wintry Mix is locals and visitors, half skiing, half not skiing. My email is alex at wintrymixcast.com. The pod voicemail is 802-560-5003. Call it. Talk to it. Five-star ratings and reviews help the pod grow, and I'll owe you a beer in the wild. If you'd like to step up from Freeloader, visit patreon.com slash wintrymixcast to toss me a dollar that I'm turning around and donating locally on behalf of the pod listeners once we hit 200 bucks. Stand by for the goods. The Wintry Mix podcast is supported by the town and country on the mountain road in Stowe. Under new ownership this season, the entirely remodeled bar and restaurant needs to be on your Opre ski hit list. Yes, you can enjoy Opre without your kids driving you nuts, thanks to their massive family room packed with all your favorites. Plus, special events like Stowe's best comedy nights and rockin' bands. Follow them on Instagram for all the announcements at Town and Country Stowe or visit townandcountrystowe.com. But really, just go there. It's worth it. I'll see you at the Town and Country. Restaurant parking is out in the back. Yep. I'm looking at you in person, not on the internet. That's true. Feels a little weird. Yeah, it is a little weird. I'm used to seeing you on top of a mountain or on top of Superstar in May. And now you're here, but you were somewhere cool this morning, weren't you? I was. I was at the Stone Hut this morning. It's a weird night to be at the Stone Hut during, uh, I don't know, pissing rainstorm. Yeah, I woke up at uh, about 545 and the wind was absolutely howling. Uh, luckily for us, it wasn't backdrafting too bad, though, into the wind stove. How did you end up there? Did you win a lottery or are you friends with somebody who did? Yeah, just friends with somebody. Got kind of last minute invite. You know, there's extra space coming to the Stone Hut. And it originally looked like it was going to snow. So I was pretty stoked about it. But unfortunately, we got the Grinch storm. So but never been to the Stone Hut. So thought it was still worth the trip. I have never been either, um, but obviously it's a hot topic. So Christine Keeney, we've got you on the pod for a couple different reasons. 
One is we had a real estate agent on the pod a few episodes ago talking about uh, transactions in the Mad River Valley and the real estate market from a buying and selling perspective, which you had some thoughts on. And I wanted to get you on here to discuss them because they are the flip side to the buying and selling side. It's the rental and living for the service industry side, which is obviously something that's really important across the country in ski towns, left and right, shortage of affordable housing. So that topic. And then secondarily, you work for this really cool endeavor that is kind of constructing an additional Appalachian Trail or something like that. But we'll let you describe that later. First, though, before we get to either of those things, you ski so much powder in so many places. When did you get the bug and what are you doing with it right now? Uh, my dad taught me to ski when I was five, so I definitely attribute um, my bug to him or the itch, as some people like to call it. Um, I was probably, I was in college. Actually, I went to college in DC, which looking back was a terrible idea. Um, and I actually used to fly up to Logan airport and I would go up to Maine, uh, for weekend, long weekend. Um, and I got my first season where I started to really kind of hit it pretty hard. I got 21 days. And then ever since then it's, you know, 50 days, 70 days, 85 days. And I told myself, you know, I'd get a hundred days and then I would let it go. You know, I'd get a hundred and I would, you know, I'd be good with it, but it's just gotten worse. <laughs> You've been getting a hundred for how many years in a row now? Uh, probably about five years. Um, and last year, and I always try to get one more day than the year before. Like that is my absolute goal. And last year I got 121 days, which was one more day than the previous season. So, and when you are doing it human powered, you're 100% telly, mostly telly. Why am I always thinking telemarks gear when I think of you? Yep, 100% telly. Okay. Yeah, love. Some people know me as the knee-dipping ginger. That's my that's my alter ego. Right, so follow <laughs> you on Instagram, right? Knee-dipping. Knee oh, my phone. Okay, we'll let that finish, and then we'll continue. I thought I shut it off so it wouldn't beep, and I was wrong. Um, the real job is calling me, but I'll talk to him in a little bit. All right, so knee-dipping ginger on Instagram, probably other places, telemarks gear on the uphill. So I have I have telemarks. They're my uphill setup, but I don't have the releasing toe piece that lets me get the full upward movement. I'm sure, obviously, you you have that and have had that for many years. Mm -hmm. What am I missing? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, telemark skis are the original. You know, telemark bindings are the original. It's the original skiing. Um, but now that it's, you know, things have advanced a little bit, um, you can, like, uh, for example, like axles um, by 22 Designs. Um, those are the 75 millimeter version, but you have no resistance. You, there's a release. And there's no resistance um, on the uphill at all. So you just get a much longer stride. Yeah, it's just it's just easier because there's just no. It's kind of like AT, like when you're you know AT bindings, you have no resistance on the uphill. If you just have regular telemark bindings, you can go uphill whenever you want. Um, but you're just gonna have the same resistance as you would have on the way down. So we're in Waterbury Center right now. It's pissing rain. It's that day. It's the reset. I recall you being a Mad River Valley resident, but you're. Do you split your time or are you in Maine full time? Where are you right now? Um, so I was living in Maine um, when I moved to the Mad River Valley. Um, I was there for a few years. Um, love Mad River. Die hard Mad River. I call myself a Mad River Glen evangelist, actually. Like just totally drank the Kool-Aid. Love it. Um, and then um, I moved uh, back to Maine um, for my current job. Um, and so but the deal is I work remotely. So, um, you know, I can come to the valley um, as long as I can find some Wi-Fi here and there. So 
So you're back and forth quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I decided to get a midweek pass at Mad River Glen this year so I could do some midweek, hopefully powder days. So cool. So what inspired this visit was, I don't remember what episode it was. Maybe it was 60. I should probably check. It was 60 or 61. Right. No, 61 was Nate Gardner. 60 was Doug Mosley. So episode 60 with Doug Mosley, Mad River Valley real estate agent. So you spent a year or years in the Mad River Valley working on this issue directly from the affordable housing perspective. What kind of set you off in that episode that made you kind of disagree a bit? Sure. Um, So when I was in the Valley, I moved there, um, obviously for skiing, but also um, I'm a planner, an urban planner, but it's really uh, about communities. It doesn't really matter whether it's urban or rural, but I moved to the Valley um, and I was working for an organization called the Mad River Valley Planning District. One of the biggest issues in the Valley then and now um, is affordable housing. One of my jobs was to write and to research and write an affordable housing study. Um, in order to do that, it's looking into all the price points of the ownership market, the rental market, uh, you know, numbers and short-term rentals, Airbnb, all that kind of stuff, um, and then look at what people can actually afford by their income. Like who who lives in the valley, who's working there, what kind of money are they making, and is there anything affordable for them? Um, and there was a lot of data that came out of it. Um, and it's a big problem. Um, it's a big problem from um, a population standpoint. You know, the Valley in a lot of Vermont is a relatively old place um, with declining populations. Um, and that means, you know, less tax base. That means less workforce. It means less young people. It means less kids being born, falling school enrollment, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, affordable housing isn't just exists in a vacuum. It really affects the whole community. Um, and that's why it's um, it's such an issue, especially in ski towns. So we hear a lot about lack of affordable housing in ski towns as a headline constantly for the last decades, ever since I'm old enough to remember what I was reading in the paper. I was reading about that yeah, um, and, and dealt with it when I was younger in the various ski towns. Yep. So what did you dig up as far as, you know, main causes, some solutions, things like that? There's a this kind of standard that people use in the affordable housing kind of uh, research land, I guess you could say, is that um, in order for something to be affordable, uh, the person or family needs to be spending 30% or less of their annual income on housing. Um, and so if you look at the incomes in the Valley, what you'll find is the median household income is actually high. It's pretty high. It's, it's in the $70,000 a year. But when you dig deeper into it, that's all well and good. But when you dig deeper, 50% of the jobs in the Valley um, are all low-wage jobs. They're all in um, retail or in service jobs. And those people are making between $19,000 and $24,000 a year. That's way lower than $73,000 a year. So when you look, at, when you dig deeper, you realize that there's 50% of the people that work there cannot even come close to affording to buy a house or to really rent either. And that's just kind of always been the case. So is there more or less available places for them to live at all in, you know, the last five, 10 years, or is it kind of just an ongoing problem that hasn't changed much? It's definitely an ongoing problem. Um, It's certainly not something that cropped up recently, but it seems to be getting worse um, from a perspective of 
um, you know, people coming in from out of town and having even higher incomes than that and buying property, which is great, except for it really takes a lot of the available stock off the ownership market. So basically most of the housing to buy at the time when I looked into it, 70% of the available houses to buy were over $300,000. And basically what's affordable to people that actually work in the valley um, is something closer to 150000 Right. So there's less on the low end to purchase. And what about the rental pool? How is the rental pool impacted? Uh, the rental pool is not, is not great either. The demand is actually for two-bedroom units, um, and there really are not a lot of two-bedrooms out there. It's a lot of um, studios and single um, one-bedroom apartments, um, which from one perspective is a good thing because there are a lot of, you know, if you are there for the season or if you're single, you know, a studio and a one-bedroom apartment is great. The problem is, is that one-bedrooms um, were averaging over $1,000 per month. Um, and basically we did a calculation to determine what would your, what would the wage be that you would need to afford a one bedroom apartment, that 30% standard I was talking about before. Um, and if you were working 40 hours a week, you would need, um, to make $22 and 22 cents an hour to afford a one bedroom apartment. And there's no hourly wage jobs other than maybe construction that gets anywhere near that in the area. Minimum wage is, is at the, I don't know if it's changed, but at the time it was just over $9. Um, so, and there are a lot of businesses that do pay over minimum wage, um, but even still, it doesn't come anywhere close to $22 an hour. So, you have a lot of one bedrooms, but nobody can afford them. You don't have larger units where you could have a roommate, or if you're a family and you have kids, you know, there's not a lot of places for like single mothers where, you know, they can't afford to buy a house. And the real, the only real option are condos, um, and then you know, condos are really not meant um, for full-time, year-round, long-term housing. I mean, they're not built well. Um, they're not, they're not easy to heat, and you know, you have to pay um, condo association fees. So, but that's the bulk of the Valley housing market is is condos um, in terms of what's affordable. But even some of those, I mean, there are studios in some cases. There's And you have ki- you know, three kids trying to live in a condo and not a good scene. So what can a community do to increase the rental pool, make the rental pool more affordable to those folks who are making between 10 and $15 an hour, which is probably a wide swath, um, when, frankly, the people who would have a year lease or a six-month lease, live in it harder than the folks coming up for the weekend. Yeah, you don't have the maintenance issues where you have to clean it every time or things like that. Um, but from an owner's perspective, when they're deciding, am I going to go Airbnb? Am I going to go home away? Am I going to go month to month with different groups? Or am I going to go seasonal with somebody just in the local workforce? How do you inspire more of them to cater to that local workforce if you can at all? Yeah, and that gets back to your question before, is it an ongoing problem or has it gotten worse? Again, I would say it's an ongoing problem, but with the advent of Airbnb and HomeAway, it does give people, in a lot of cases, a more attractive option to rent their properties, like you're saying. Um, but you know, the the flip side of that is, one, there's a difference between people, let's say that you did buy an expensive house because there weren't really any other options and you want to you have an in-law apartment or you've got a basement apartment and you want to rent it out to help with your mortgage, that's great. I don't, you know, from a, from like a community affordable housing perspective, I don't see a huge issue with that. Um, but what a lot of people have been finding that 
is the issue are what they call commercial listings, um, meaning that people are buying entire houses or um, that are buying apartment buildings and they're just renting it out as Airbnb. So basically, you might have an apartment building that had, let's say, three apartments in it or something. Somebody buys it, rents it out, all Airbnb. You've now lost long-term rentals off the market. And the incentive is there, like you're saying, for people to do the short-term rentals because they can make more money. That is definitely a problem. Um, in terms of the, you know, the solutions, there are a few solutions. And obviously, you know, there's no silver bullet, I would say, for sure. One of the things that I did when I worked in the Valley was there's actually a bunch of resorts out west, um, like Cooper Spur Mountain, um, the one in Washington. I'm blanking on the name right now. What region of Washington? Oh, my gosh. I'm totally blanking on the name Talking right now. Crystal or Baker or Stevens. Stevens. It's Stevens. Yeah, go. yeah. Yeah. So uh, Stevens and actually Jackson Hole did this for a summer and it's called the Tenants for Turns program. And you guys did this locally at Sugarbush, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So basically I was kind of looking for solutions um, and, you know, a lot of the solutions that are out there are you know, build affordable housing, which is definitely part of the equation. People have heard Jay has built afford, you know, has built affordable housing. You know, I am over in Maine now. Sunday River, you know, has bought a whole, basically a whole inn and is renting that out um, to their employees. And so that's definitely part of the picture. But I was looking for something that was more of a kind of short-term win. So I called up a bunch of people from these mountains out west, like Stevens, and I basically interviewed their um, human resource people. And basically the Tenants Returns program is something where the resort basically gives homeowners more of incentive to rent out to their employees. Basically, you um, list your rental with the ski resort. They basically put together a binder, you know, a bunch of PDFs or whatever of an application that says, you know, where the apartment is, how many bedrooms, you know, what's the heating, is it on the shuttle line, things like that. Um, and then when employees come looking for housing, they have basically a whole database of people that are willing to rent to their employees and have signed up for the program. And then the resort, the cool thing about it is they just really act as a matchmaker. Um, so they basically just say, here's, you know, in a, you know, here's all these apartments, you call them, you figure it out. If you sign a lease, you know, send it back to us. We'll okay. You know, we'll sign off on it. And then the, um, how the, uh, homeowner gets a hundred dollar season pass, or if you don't like skiing for some strange reason, um, then you can also get a, uh, pass to, uh, the shark, the, uh, the gym mm -hmm. at a uh, sugar bush. So it was the first year, um, when I started, it was last season, um, with sugar bush and we, they were able to house almost 30 people, um, the first season. Do you know if they're still doing it this year? They are. Yeah, they, um, we honestly, when we were looking at kind of the numbers from the mountains out West, like when they first started it, we were thinking like five people and it ended up being 30. So it ended up being a huge success. And, um, honestly, I was surprised about how well it actually worked. Um, and then the, the people at HR at Sugarbush basically said, we don't know how we did it before we had this. Um, so I think it's going to be something that will, I hope the other mountains will do it. Um, there's really, you know, there's really no investment um, on the mountain standpoint, except for, you know, some staff time um, from like the HR folks. And the thing is, is that all those mountains out West were so willing to help us. Like they were like, yeah, you know, here's what worked. Here's what didn't work. 
And, you know, we just kind of tweaked it from there of what would work for a sugar bush. Yeah. And these things will travel around the ski towns. It does work in a certain spot where it'll get out and go around. It seems like the one sticking point or the one thing that would kind of limit the amount of folks who could take advantage is the fact that the owner kind of needs to be one of the owners that isn't planning on using their place all winter. It can't be one of the folks who wants to use it at Christmas and use it at spring break and rent it out. Otherwise, they have to be kind of out of town the whole winter or not using it. The thing is, is the um, there aren't a lot of stipulations on the program, meaning it doesn't say it has to be this many bedrooms. It doesn't say, you know, it doesn't say how much it has to even be. It's just a matter of connecting people who need housing with people that have housing. Um, and so, you know, if it's above a garage and has a wood stove, you know, maybe that won't work for somebody, but maybe it works great for somebody else. And basically what Sugarbush did is come up with, you know, looking at, what is affordable to their employees in terms of how much money they make they do it's basically a suggested rent it's kind of it's actually kind of like a free market thing where you know if somebody looks at all these different options and there's one that's a thousand dollars a month and there's one that's five hundred dollars a month you know the five hundred dollar one is probably going to get chosen and maybe the person doesn't rent out the more expensive one so it's it's kind of up to the employees on kind of you know what works for them too yeah, I read the article, I think, that was in VT Ski and Ride um, that had this program in it. 30, I mean, if they ever got this up to 80, I mean, that would be amazing. And yeah. it would be a huge bite out of the apple of the problem, at least for the resort proper. It doesn't really address the community as a whole, but I guess if you can take care of a big chunk of the resort side, it maybe just takes those folks out of the problem and, I don't know calms the waters a bit in the in the region. If you're taking 80 people and the total pool of people who are struggling to find housing is maybe 400 and you bring it down to 320, I mean, maybe that just it softens the blow a bit overall. What you're saying is it, it's still a drop in the bucket for sure, but Sugarbush is the biggest employer um, in the area, so it does take a bite out of it, but the problem still remains with restaurants, retail stores, all that kind of stuff is you know, it's not, they're not able to pay a wage high enough to get people to drive, you know, an hour to work. It's not really worth it. You might as well drive a shorter distance and work somewhere closer to where you live and make kind of the same amount of money. So I know that restaurants had a really hard time, like cooks, waitresses. Um, and, you know, some of the places are actually, they're taking matters into their own, their own hands and they're, you know, like Mad River Barn, um, for example, where, you know, we interviewed a lot of um, employers and they said it's a huge problem and they, the employers themselves are looking for solutions. Like they've just got to buy places to house their employees. So what's the next big hairy idea in this space? What, what do you see on the horizon that, that might, that might work? You know, I think it's going to be that, that resorts especially are going to get more and more into building their own housing. Um, you know, if you look at, there's actually a ton of examples out West there, you know, a little bit ahead of us and trying to address this problem. And in some places, you know, like, for example, like Jackson Hole, the the difference between, you know, the service industry wages and the people that buy houses up there is it, it's the same problem, but it's exacerbated because their houses are going for $1.5 million. So you have a bigger problem. Um, but there's actually, if anybody wants to look a little bit more into this, there's a there's something called CAST, the Colorado Association of Ski Towns, it's kind of almost a similar organization to the one in the Mad River Valley that basically does this type of work that looks at what are the issues in our ski towns because they do kind of have a, um, a particular set of problems and what are the solutions. And, you know, just getting back to the Airbnb thing, 
if you look at the top five Airbnb listings in towns in Vermont, four of them are ski towns. Wow. Which the only other town is Burlington. It is ski towns, you know, and it is a particular problem in ski towns. And those cast, the Colorado towns, they've, you know, they've looked at a lot of the different options because their towns all have these same problems. And how bad is the negative effect of Airbnb and what should the response be? And one of the biggest problems, you know, even from a research standpoint is we don't have enough data. We, we're getting a little bit better idea of, you know, how many short-term rentals there are. Um, and now, as of July 1st, 2018, the state of Vermont actually passed a bill that is going to require all short-term rental operators to have a rooms and meals tax ID. Um, and that way, so it should, A, the state's going to start collecting more of rooms and meals taxes, but B, there should be better tracking mechanisms out of it, meaning how many are there? Like, what is the problem you know, how big is it? But the biggest thing that we don't know is how many long-term rentals are being converted to short-term because we, you need to have some kind of tracking system to do that. You need basically kind of like a permit system, if not for anything else, just to know what the impact on the housing market is. Because right now you just, it's kind of just amorphous. It's not that great, but we don't know. Um, and so it's up to, it's kind of up to towns and, you know, in, especially in Vermont, you know, if the top five towns with air, you know, Airbnb rentals are ski towns, it's going to be ski towns that are going to be the ones that are going to do something about it. That's a good point. What do you think of Aspen and the tiny houses? Did you see that? I did see that. I was thinking of that before is if anybody's heard of this is Aspen um, basically bought out a campground and ordered a bunch of tiny houses, like pretty nice tiny houses. Like they weren't cheap tiny houses as far as tiny houses go. And they're basically just setting up employees in there. And from what I've heard, it's been successful. Um, and I think they're probably going to keep doing it. I, I think that tiny houses are also, again, not the solution, but can potentially take a bite out of the problem. One of the things that we looked at in the Valley is there is no campground. So if there was, you know, maybe there could be an area that could be year round tiny houses or whatever. And that's a resource that if you do have, you might be able to use that as a solution. Yeah. Once one place really figures it out well, uh, it'll definitely get exported uh, because that's just this struggle is is literally everywhere to varying degrees. Now, where you are now, you know, Newry, Sunday River area, it is probably less of an issue because you're surrounded by communities that don't have that super high median. And therefore, if it's in the rental pool, it's affordable. So I guess it, it isn't every ski zone or area the main resorts probably not as bad north conway not even as bad mm -hmm. because you get down into conway you can get out into freiburg some of these areas that are not right next to the resort and you're into a more regular cost of living area so i guess it's on the east coast it's more of a vermont problem than a whole east coast problem yeah you know i think there is there are some issues at sunday river as well like i said you know the resort rented out an entire inn basically and is um, housing employees. I know they just renovated some other housing above one of the base lodges for employees. Um, they're paying snowmakers $20 an hour when they're making snow and because they can't hire people. So it's, you know, can you raise wages, but, and is that going to address the problem? But, you know, I think the Valley, um, because of its geography is particularly challenging. Um, you know, there's basically one main road, Route 100 in and out. And 
if you get pushed out of the valley from a housing standpoint, you're you know, you're going down to Granville, you're going to Starksboro. Or you're, you're driving going, over the app gap every single day. You're driving over the app gap every single day. And then that gets into transportation issues. You know, if you are making lower wages, you know, what's your car situation? You know, is your car, are you going to slide off, you know, Route 17 or something? And so it kind of opens up a whole nother kind of can of worms getting into a transport. You know, once you can't afford housing, then it becomes a transportation problem. So this is an issue that I think a lot of people are passionate about, obviously yourself included, with a history in it. But it's not what you're doing now. The elevator pitch when folks are like, hey, what do you do for a living right now? Let's shift gears to the to the today. Sure. So I left my job in the Valley, um, which was it was definitely hard to leave. It's an amazing place. Um, but right now I am working for an organization called the East Coast Greenway Alliance. Um, and we are a nonprofit organization that is working on developing an off-road, traffic-separated, basically shared-use path that goes from the Canadian border in Maine uh, all the way down to Key West, Florida. So you said off-road, traffic-separated. So I'm imagining that takes a whole bunch of different forms. It does, yeah. If you want to, if the easiest way to envision it is really a shared-use path. So if anybody knows the Stowe uh, recreation path, um, that's basically what we're talking about, a 10 to 12-foot-wide path. Um, but you're right. It can, it can be stone dust trail. Um, you know, and in urban places, it could be, if anybody's heard of uh, separated bike lanes, um, where they basically paint a bike lane and then put up, um, flexible delineators. There's some, um, in Burlington, um, if people know those. So it, it does take different forms depending on kind of the context if it's urban, rural. And it's going from where to where, I mean, it's as long. It's going from Callis, Maine, um, which is way down East, um, it's kind of near like Eastport, not as far down east as Lubeck, but um, so it's on the Canadian border and it's a route. And so the route exists now. It's both on road and off road now. Um, and it goes all the way to Key West, Florida. Are there any breaks in it or it is continuous already? So it again, it's on road and off road. So, you know, you'll be on a segment that's off road and then you'll get rooted on road. Um, and it's basically the on road sections are, are interim as we build the rest of it. Got it. So it exists in perpetuity of the entire distance now, but the on-road sections are areas that where your work is trying to find them into more interesting zones for that on-road section that exists now. Exactly. Yeah. Our goal is to make uh, basically an accessible uh, shared use path um, through urban, rural, um, you know, it goes through New York City, and then it also goes through places like Cherryfield, Maine. Um, the idea is that it's accessible, meaning that people with um, uh, handicaps can use it, um, wheelchairs, that sort of thing, um, that it's open to all different users. So running, walking, biking, some of them in Maine um, in the winter, open to cross-country skiing, um, rollerblading, all kinds of stuff um, in there. And it's also, again, traffic separated, meaning that people of all ages uh, feel comfortable either using it for transportation or recreation purposes. How is it funded? Yeah, that's a good question. So our organization um, is a membership organization. So, um, you know, you can become a member of the East Coast Greenway and that helps support our work, whether it's, you know, a one-time donation or, you know, a monthly um, sustaining member. Um, we also have support from foundations as well um, and private um, donations as, you know, as well. So uh, that supports our staff time. And then our projects are um, mostly 
uh, grant funded. So usually federal or state grant funded, um, or they can be foundation as well. But they're usually uh, the infrastructure projects because they're usually ideally are on public land so that it's publicly accessible. The land is usually owned by the state or a municipality, and therefore the money will get transferred from the state to the municipality. So is this just on a map or are there signs out there? Yeah, good question. So on our website, um, our website is greenway.org, but we have a page called map.greenway.org, and it's an interactive map, um, and it shows you which sections are on-road, what's off-road. You can actually you can download turn-by-turn directions, or you can download the GPS, um, and then you can like bring it up in your phone or a GPS device, and you can follow the whole thing, and we're constantly updating it. So it's always up to date. Um, and we also install signs um, with arrows for wayfinding the whole way. So in, in theory, or maybe even in practice, if you're on a bicycle and you want like the most enjoyable way to get from Florida to Maine, this is potentially it. This is it. Yeah, for sure. And some, you know, some people, if it's in, you know, in their town or something, they'll go out and walk their dog or they'll go for a bike ride, you know, on the weekend or something. Um, but some people do start in Florida and go to Maine or start in Maine and go to Florida, kind of like the Appalachian Trail. All right. Greenway.org. Yep. And if you just bought a place in the Mad River Valley or any ski town anywhere and you're about to put it on Airbnb, think twice because you're just ruining the locals. Pretty much. You are. I mean, you are, but you're still going to do it. But if you're not going to be in it all year, reach out to the resort. Say, hey, they do this thing down at Sugarbush where I can get a hookup if I let your staff live here. And maybe your resort will be like, hey, we need places to put our employees. Let's try this. Yeah, exactly. And hey, if anybody needs a, you know, a primer on the tenants returns, bring it to your resort. Let me know. And you know, I'd be happy to kind of give some folks some pointers on it. It can be brought anywhere, you know. Tenants returns information, hit up knee dipping ginger on Instagram, uh, otherwise known as Christine Keeney. Thanks for coming by, Christine. Thank you for having me. And it's rant time. Guess what? I have four gift certificates to the town and country in Stowe that I'm going to start giving away on the Wintry Mixcast Instagram. That's at Wintry Mix Cast. But you can't win them unless you're on the feed. So go and click that shit. Also, one other thing you can use Instagram for is nudging folks in my neighborhood to get them on the pod. Someone interesting live nearby or traveling through town? Tell them to get on Wintry Mix Cast. About 25% of pod guests are due to listener suggestion, and Instagram tends to be the great equalizer. Use it to our advantage. End of rant. Thank you to Christine Keeney for providing a solid counterpoint to episode 60. Remember, you can call 802-560-5003 to leave a question or a rant or a whatever. If it's a good rant, it'll be the rant. Or hit me up via email at alex at wintrymixcast.com. Also a reminder that I'm pooling our spare change to donate to local causes. It's going to be rad when we cut our first check on behalf of the listeners of the Wintry Mix podcast. Patreon.com slash Wintry Mixcast to chuck a buck. 
and you'll get a sticker when they finally get finished. I think they're arriving like today. I'm recording this now, and I think they're going to show up today, and I'm kind of excited about it. Also a heads up that you'll now see some Xander Bass Depth, my alter ego pen name, on vtskiandride.com. We're helping each other out a little bit. Sign up for free digital subscription to Vermont Ski and Ride magazine at vtskiandride.com and look for print copies at your local outdoor retailer, bars, coffee shops, other things. And if you see someone cruising through Waterbury that ought to get on the pod, you can likely accomplish that if you tell them to. At Wintry Mixcast on Instagram. Goodbye. Oh, wait, hold on a sec. This episode was a little short in length, so here's a memory hole snippet from an interview with the Out of Bounds podcast guy from a couple months back. I think it was episode 33 of his. I definitely needed some ski town affordable housing in the 90s. The truck got old. My, my ski shop story that I ended up telling the most, um, when I was living in Vail, it was in Lion's Head, I worked at two places that were right next door to one another. One was called Ski Base. I don't know if they still exist or not. And it was next to a coffee shop called Zele. And I worked at the coffee shop and I worked at the ski shop right next to each other. And I had just gotten a pair of Solomon Super Force 9s, <laughs> brand new. They were like, I had wanted them so badly. You know, the Twin Tips didn't exist or, or they did, but not, you know, near me. They were just being invented. You know, Leventhal was inventing them then. Yeah. And so they weren't really around. Uh, but Super Force 9s were what you had to have if you were going big on anything. I finally got a pair. But I didn't know how to mount them. You know, I could do various things in the ski shop. I could base edge and wax and, and mount rent, you know, not mount rentals, um, fit rentals yeah, and whatnot, right. you know, the basics. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't mount my own skis. I'd never been shown. I'd never learned. I was probably only 17. And the owner, Jay, his wife, Sari, I don't know where they live. I don't know where they are. <laughs> um, they're one of my first, you know, people that I dealt with as a quasi adult. He was going to show me how to mount these skis. And yeah. I was waiting, waiting, waiting. My shift was over, but he was like talking to, he was talking to Tom. Freaking winter. I don't know okay. He is. now runs free ride world tour. Oh but he yeah. Was yeah. Like a okay. huge writer. I, I, I ton, tons is. of magazines. Yeah. Um, he was talking to Tom winter out front and I was sitting there waiting. I didn't know who the fuck Tom winter was at this point, you know, <laughs> at all. And it didn't matter to me. So that's why he was waiting. But like, I didn't care. He was just talking to some guy and I got frustrated. Yeah. So I grabbed my bindings. I grabbed my skis. I march out of the shop. Yeah. He maybe notices, maybe doesn't. I don't know. I go across the street to this other ski shop. Yeah. Might have been Christie Sports or some shit. Whatever was operating was then, yeah. Lion's Head. And I, they know me because they get coffee from me. We All these little businesses all know me because I'm the coffee shop kid. Yeah. And I go in there. I'm like, guys, can you guys mount these for me? You know, I'll give you some coffee tomorrow. Like, what a free coffee tomorrow if you mount these for me tonight. And they're like, sure, fucking why not? Yeah. And so they mount my skis for me. And I give them coffee the next day. And the next day, Jay comes in, fires me. Really? Yeah, he fired me because I took the skis across the street to the competing ski shop, had them mount them, and gave them coffee from the coffee shop next door. And he took that personally, and I get it. And he was, you yeah. know, whatever. Um, so I got fired from the ski shop because <laughs> I gave my skis to be mounted by the guys across the street in a coffee trade. Um, I don't think there was any weed trading or anything like that. It was just straight <laughs> coffee. And then, so then he fired me, but then he couldn't come next door and get coffee anymore because he felt yeah, yeah, awkward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So his wife would always come over and get the coffee oh, after until I didn't God. work there anymore. Um, so it became this weird environment there for a period of time when I only worked at the coffee shop after getting fired from the ski shop. 
Um, and then I ended up working at a ski shop in Steamboat because I went to, I started college in Steamboat at yeah. Colorado Mountain College, um, Alpine campus. Um, cause I got a, uh, I got a scholarship in Colorado, or at least in 1997 in Colorado, mm. if you dropped out and got a GED, but then you scored like the highest in the one percentile on the GED, you get a scholarship. Yeah, really? So if you're like the smartest dumb kid, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, cause I, I had dropped out because I had moved every year of my life and my, my parents had gotten married and divorced like, four it, times yeah. each. And I was just like, you know, you got, they were moving to Massachusetts. I was yeah. living in Vail. I like to ski. I could make $14 oh, an that's hour. Miserable. I was yeah, like, you guys go, imagine. I'm staying here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I just did that, got emancipated, <clears throat> scored really good on the GED, got a scholarship, used it after three years of ski bumming mm. and then transferred back East. Um, after going to CMC, went to UMass Lowell, which was a bad call. Cause I, I was trying to still be a weatherman. I was, oh, I, yeah? I tried to, I was majoring at that point in atmospheric science. No shit. Um, but that just has so much math, like chemistry and physics and everything with it. They don't just guess? No. Are you sure? Um, yeah. <laughs> no, they're good. Uh, if you're one of the people who like, <laughs> likes to shit on weather people and says they're I always wrong, I don't. we're going to have it out. I, I don't. Because they are so freaking right. And if they didn't exist, imagine how hard it would be to live.